in 2022, about 80% of the surgeries are still being done open old-fashioned way, but more and more, we come to the conclusion that the surgery that we did now, 10 years ago, it was seven hours. We do it in one hour and send the patient home in hours. And those patients recover so much faster. So this was always uh, in the back of my mind. Your question, this is a long answer to your question. When, how, how or when did I come with this? It is that it was clear to me from my first day, days in the med school that something can need to be done better doing a surgery and losing half of your body blood is not really a good way to perform surgery. Yes, we transfuse, we are prepared for that, but this patient takes them years to recover. Then on and on, as I went, I saw that others discipline, they already are ahead of us. So I took it upon myself to bring the spine surgery where General surgery, when 40 years ago, uh, joint surgery, 20 years ago, and um, OBGYN, like 80 years ago. Now it is our time. This is the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities and future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance Podcast. I am your host, Trisha Talbot. As a healthcare real estate advisor to providers and investors, the best solutions occur when the two collaborate together as partners in delivering better patient care. Providers can deliver care to their patients when and where they need it, and investors realize the returns to build and manage facilities. We explore changes in medicine and wellness, the future of healthcare, and using real estate as a strategic and financial tool. Today's podcast episode is part of the Healthcare Innovation Series, where I feature a healthcare company or a physician that is making an impact on patient care procedures or outcomes. My guest today is Dr. Hamid Abbasi, Medical Director of Inspired Spine, where he performs minimally invasive spine surgeries, priding himself on being able to help patients that others have been told for years they had to live with their pain. His medical campus includes education, training, and surgery centers. For those that watch the YouTube video, they can share in his diagram of the spine as he explains how the minimally invasive procedure he performs has better outcomes. Hamid, welcome to the uh, Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. My pleasure. So let's start with your background. Uh, I find it interesting that you have a a medical degree in neurosurgery and a PhD in computer computer science. So when I read it, I thought it might be a typo, but uh, why don't you share your path uh, to neurosurgery and then through computer science for us? Um, I do believe the path for most of surgeons is not a straight one. Um, It just requires people who are very dedicated to what they do and uh, they're not afraid of for, for the path to be a very long one. So I'm born in Iran, and uh, I actually did one year of uh, uh, med school in Iran. It was just about six years after the uh, Iranian revolution, and it was crazy time, for lack of other terms. So they, literally, I got in trouble, so I had to go. And uh, I went to Germany, I, uh, 1987, I went to Germany, and then I actually went to a German school and uh, some pre-med 
1989, I started my med school in Germany. And as if that wasn't enough, in 1993, I started a PhD in computer science. <laughs> At that time, the computer you and I are talking is a marvel. At that time, the computer we bought was uh, $750,000 for my PhD, where I wrote my programs. And the graphic card um, was $250,000. And uh, the, the amazing part is your cell phone probably has uh, 350 times more capacity than that computer. But we, I wrote a program to use the bone, it's a computer tomographical picture from a CAT scan, put it in the computer and then make a model, 3D model that you can cut at different angle to see how it behaves when you do it for a real person. We call that the finite element model that as well, when they crash the car, they use the same computer technology. So we use that for medicine. In 1996, I finished my med school but my PhD was still ongoing until 1998. So I did meanwhile residency in Germany, but that wasn't good enough for me. So I went to Stanford. I did a postdoc and research associate position. I helped them to develop a navigation system for spine because I was very knowledgeable about that. But then I knew there's no way I'm going back. So um, I applied. I uh, uh, actually matched to a general surgery program in Dartmouth College, Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. And after that, I reapplied and matched to a neurosurgery program in Galveston, Texas. And then I had to repeat everything again. So I have one of the longest uh, residency. My residency was three, uh, 13 and a half years. In average, people do half as much uh, residency. But after that, after I finished my residency and I rotated in all major hospitals in Houston, um, my residency program was in Galveston, Texas. And um, we decided to see another part of the uh, United States. So we decided to come to Midwest. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's where I am now. In, I'm in Minneapolis and practice across Minneapolis. But as well, we are now uh, actually, uh, having uh, satellites in multiple states, Arizona is next. Good. Yeah, I'm saying you just haven't hit the Southwest yet. Oh. So you know, as you're you uh, you know you perform, you're starting to perform brain and spine surgeries, and and you continue through your career and perfecting your craft. When did you start to focus on minimally invasive spine surgery? You know. Um, this is a secret uh, that we doctors don't tell our patients often. Uh, we know for a very long time that if you miss, poke smaller holes, patient, patient, have to less, uh, patient have less injury to recover from. Common sense, right? Big hole, lots of recovery. Smaller hole, smaller recovery. And in um, about 70 years ago, even more, maybe 80 years ago, the OBGYN doctors in the, the, the woman doctors started using tubes, a tube that, you know, you don't make a big open, uh, opening in the body. You just put a tube in and through the tube, you perform what you need to perform. Once the tube, and the reason for that is obviously for women, you have a big opening to a, a uterus and 
you can put bigger speculum or tubes in. About 50 or 60 years ago, the, the urology, the doctor who take care of your uh, bladder and the kidneys and so on, they noticed that with the technology, they could do smaller kind of endoscope. So they start using that. In 1980s, meaning 40 years ago, the general surgeon discovered that you know, you can make a hole in the belly and then do the surgery through the smaller hole and then patient recovers so much faster. And then orthopedic surgeon about 20 years ago discovered, wow, the technology is far enough that we can put it in your knee or in your joint and perform a surgery and send you home same day. Now, we all experts agree. If you would be doing surgery like cholecystectomy, appendectomy and so on, like the way we did 50 years ago, we would break medical system because <laughs> patient had to stay in the hospital for so long. They have so much to recover from. Yet in spine, we are doing surgery still today in 2022, mostly um, the way we did it 40 and 50 years ago. But technology is now far enough. So, and that was, that is a secret maybe to a lay person, but the doctor, we knew something has to happen, but our technology just was never far enough to be able to do that. And, uh, and when I went through my residency and I saw these surgeries, humongous surgery, sometimes you ask, uh, doctor, your cure is worse than my disease, you know, <laughs> that it is taken, that amount of the injury it goes, the result is good, but the amount of the injury you have to do to get the job done was tremendous. So. And I'm a thinker, I'm a, a geek, I'm a nerd. I know what needs to be done, and it took it off me to do it. And yet, uh, in 2022, about 80% of the surgeries are still being done open, old-fashioned way. But more and more, we come to the conclusion that the surgery that we did uh, now 10 years ago, it was seven hours, we do it in one hour and send the patient home in hours, and those patients recover so much faster. So this was always uh, in the back of my mind. Your question, this is a long answer to your question. When, how, how or when did I come with this? It is that it was clear to me from my first day, days in the med school that something can need to be done better. Doing a surgery and losing half of your body blood is not really a good way to perform surgery. Yes, we transfuse, we are prepared for that, but this patient takes them years to recover. Then on and on, as I went, I saw that others discipline, they already are ahead of us. So I took it upon myself to bring the spine surgery where general surgery went 40 years ago, uh, joint surgery 20 years ago, and um, OBGYN like 80 years ago. Now it is our time. Well, and, and spine surgery, um, you know, I, I hear all the time, you have people go in and, and get recommendations to have it. And the recovery is so rough that, um, and the outcome is un, unknown. You know, you go through all of this with a 50-50. So with minimally invasive spine surgery, are the is the percentage for more successful outcomes better than the more severe surgery types? The same way that 
you know, you're cutting, open your belly like 20 inch versus small pokes in your belly gives you better recovery, better outcome. Uh, the same way, if you cause less damage on the way of going in, you have less to recover. The results are unbelievably better. I'm talking about people who um, have been 10 years in pain and nobody wants to do surgery on them because these surgeons are very good at weighing risk versus benefit. Mm -hmm. And we know what the risks of open surgery is. And then we compare it and we say, no, you're 75 years old, you're 80 years old, or your body mass index is high. And just, there's so much risks involved in what you're doing, do, uh, what the surgery that you're going to have, that it's not really reasonable to give you the choice. So you have to go and live with this pain. Unfortunately, many of these people are miserable for tens of years until they find somebody like me. And then they go and do a surgery that is one hour. They don't have to lose 2,000 cc of blood. They lose half a cup of coffee blood. And we send them home in two hours, in four hours. Happens every day. But the problem is here that the technology for spine, technology is very refined in other disciplines of medicine. But for spine, the technology is very, very new. Well, um, that brings me to, let's talk about uh, Inspired Spine, because I, I loved your tagline that we, we help patients, other spine surgeons cannot. So talk to me about how you started uh, Inspired Spine and, and the background on that. Well, the, the Inspired Spine uh, comes, the name actually comes from the old quote that uh, from a scientist, that scientist is a person who discovered quantum physics. His name is Max Planck. When he discovered Max Planck and he presented to his peers and it took him a long time to get acceptance for that. And he had a quote that says, the science never advanced of truth to be generally accepted, but it advances by an inspired scientist working hard to laid the foundation, he was the scientist who laid the foundation, and then next generation will accept it because that is the best way of doing it. That Mark Planck, his calculation is what enable us to talk on the, on the Zoom today. Every little chip is on the computer science that enable us to communicate today is based on his calculation 120 years ago. Mm. So, that's where the, the name Inspired Spine comes from, because um, we need few people like me who has no hobbies, and their hobby is in the night looking at anatomical structure, looking at uh, x-rays, CAT scan, to find out how can we do things better. And the, the reward is that truly we can now help people nobody else can. There's not a week I don't get a elderly patient who have been told you have to live with that, they come to me and tell me, but doctor, if this is how I'm going to live, I do not want to live. And we do a one-hour surgery, the pain goes away. They can walk again. They're independent. And there are tremendous number of there. This is not anecdotal. I have put like 1,000 testimonial on YouTube for this patient. They say, they told me I cannot have the surgery. We do a surgery that is one hour, patient walks right away and goes home in a few hours and their pain is gone. And that is why our sign, sign of the inspired spine is the butterfly. 
you are proud to give the patient wings, a new life, a new identity. Because when you are in pain, your entire identity is about how to live, how to manage your pain the next 15 minutes. All your family is busy too. Um, uh, and spine is not an easy thing to deal with, but it's not a rare problem at all. By the time you are 50 years old, like uh, almost my age, but the chance that you don't have spine problem is less than 30%. By the time you are 60 and 70 years old, the chance you don't have spine problem is less than 5 and 2%. So meaning spine is something that all of us have to deal with. You get older, you know, and our whole generation, our whole society is getting older. Our spine is not made to go 60, 70, 80 years straight. Many people have this problem. Just in the United States, uh, in 2021, 1.5 million surgeries are performed. This is a public health issue for us to be able to do the surgery better, more efficient, and being able to give it to people who otherwise um, are truly dependent on other for day, for their daily activity. So this is a public health issue. Yeah, it's that gravity problem pushing down on us all those years. <laughs> I know, I know. It's, it's on earth. <laughs> so Inspired Spine, you have seven locations, but you said that you, um, you know, you have these satellites. Um, are you only in four, you're, so you're in more than four states now, but yeah. you're primarily in Minnesota? Well, uh, we are, our flagship is in Minnesota. As many people know, Minnesota, Minneapolis specifically, is truly a hub for medical technology and medical innovation. Many, many uh, big names are here in Minneapolis, and the community as well is very conductive to uh, move the medicine forward. And there, we have our flagship here, but there is not a week that I don't get many patients from other states. Just today morning, I did a surgery on a patient from Atlanta, Georgia, who nobody else wanted to do surgery for a good reason. I did that surgery. I'm going to send that patient hopefully home in the next few days. And that surgery I just did today. So what we do, there is a big need in the entire United States for what we do. And that's what our plan is now. To Instead of patient drive and fly to us, we want to bring the care closer to the patient. So we are starting with certain states, but uh, our plan is hopefully having affiliate partners to expand it to the entire United States. That's incredible. Uh, well, let's get into the, the couple of the procedures that you developed. So talk to me about and explain for the audience what the oblique lateral lumbar inner body fusion procedure is and, and why it produces better outcomes for you. Well, um, when the disc goes bad, meaning that uh, practically our spine is made of bone and disc interspersed. And I'm happy to send you maybe some pictures that you can use or as you wish. And I'm happy even to bring those uh, films, uh, those picture slides up if you wish me now. Sure. But, yeah, okay. Then yeah. Let me get those films because uh, as they say, the picture speaks thousand words. Yeah, the, the audio people won't be able to see it, but the video people can. So yeah, I, I still explain <laughs> it, but I think by being able to look at these pictures, 
they get much better idea about these different approaches. Why is it different? Now, now this is a cross section of our spine. This is back, this is front. And as a matter of fact, these are the, this is our spine here. And inside of the spine, there's a hole that the spinal cord goes through. And this, this is our belly and organs in our belly. Like this is our kidney, small intestine, big intestine. And in the 1950s, that is just 70 years ago, we learned that we can go straight down cut all the muscle and get access to the spine, but the spinal cord is in our way. It took us 30 years to find out if we go a little to the side, we don't have to push the spinal cord. People do better. Talking about uh, being careful and conservative, it took us 30 years to figure that out. Then, but that time we knew that if we go from the back, we have to cut all the muscles and there are significant number of the muscles. I'm going to show you some of them, like here. All this muscle. Now, the first dirty secret of the spine surgeon is that when we cut this muscle, we don't reattach them. Don't say it to anybody, okay? In a regular surgery, like imagine you get the shoulder surgery, we cut your muscle in your shoulder, and then we say, eh, I'm not going to reattach those muscles. That joint, that segment become pretty non-functional. Yet that is, you know, when we go from the back, we have thousands of those small muscles. There's no way to reattach them all. So we just cut them and they turn into skull. For that reason, already 1970s and 80s, we learned that we can go through the belly to get to the bone and the disc. So we don't have to cut the muscle, but then we have to go through your belly. There are major vessels like your aorta, Vena cava, all your intestines and so on are in our way. So this is can, can be a very risky procedure as well. Now, what we then learned uh, that you see there is a small little white band here. First, in the last 15 years, we learned how to use that very narrow band and go in a way that we are not disturbing the muscle in the back and neither we are disturbing the organs in the front. And that's what Olaf is. Using that narrow band, being away from all the muscle in the back and all the organs in your belly to perform the surgery. Now, you see that band is not very big. So yeah. the surgery is technically very challenging and is a very technologically advanced kind of surgery. But what it enables us to do is turn the picture on the left to picture on the right, practically poke small holes, not cut the muscle, but dilate them. And then once you remove the top of these uh, uh, practically tubes, um, inside everything collapses and people have practically no scoring whatsoever. Here is a patient that I did old-fashioned surgery in 2012 here, the white, some of the people who are not medical people, they say, look at that, that white is so beautiful. What is the, that ugly uh, pink stuff on the, here on the uh, right? It's just the opposite. The pink stuff is a live tissue. The left is a practically dead 
muscle or scar. This mm. helps you to recover. This takes you a year or two to recover from. And that is by doing this kind of surgery with the tubes, we are not producing dead tissue. We are not disrupting the muscle's uh, memory and the muscle activity. And that enable us to send the patient home literally within hours after the surgery. Because, uh, and obviously, there's a high level of technology involved to do this surgery. This is not an easy surgery. And this is not something people learn in the med school yet because it's new. So I'm going to unshare my screen, but I have a lot more picture where this came from. If you wish, I can show you. But uh, the OLEF or oblique lateral posterior lumbar body fusion is the procedure we do. There is another OLEF where they still go through the belly, that is oblique anterior lumbar body fusion. That olive has one L, our olive has two L. So we are heavy on Ls. Well, if it's not in medical school though, are you training, you're training maybe after they get out of medical school? And then, okay. No, these are all things that are beyond the med school kind of knowledge. This is what you learn in the residency. But even resi few residency programs are still today are teaching minimal invasive approaches. Where I'm sitting right now, we don't have an office, we don't have a clinic, we have a campus. We are this is a three building, 120,000 square feet. This is my dream. Right? This is what uh, I love to do. We have an educational center. We have a, a lab. As a matter of fact, uh, downstairs in our cadaver room. We have cadavers right now. Um, a little creepy, but it's, uh, that's how surgeons learn. I'd yeah. rather, <laughs> yet they have to learn on something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's the best way to learn is uh, by grace of people who provide their body for science and education. So your grandma doesn't have to be the first person the surgeon does surgery on. Right. Yeah. And then you said you're the only surgeon doing another procedure, um, minimally invasive thoracic interbody fusion. Correct, correct. You see, this surgery in the lumbar spine or in the lower back, now we have, we have trained many, many surgeons to do that. There is another surgery that practically same kind of technology, smaller holes, doing in the chest area. Now, it happened to be that chest anatomy is very different. You have the rib cage, you have the heart, you have the lung. So technology and the steps are very, very different. This is a lot more advanced than doing it in the lower back. And as a matter of fact, you remember I told you a patient came from uh, Atlanta, to Georgia, to get that surgery. That is a surgery that nobody else can do. That's why this patient was willing to come to me from Atlanta. That was in the chest. Mm. Uh, that is why this patient has to come to me to do this surgery. Otherwise, we would have sent him to one of our partners across the nation, maybe closer to him. Interesting. And so, um, you know, obviously with that size campus, do you, do you have fellowship um, training with the hospitals around you? Well, we have a fellowship program. As a matter of fact, we just took our first uh, fellow uh, Dr. Arya is trained as well, surprisingly, or uh, coincidentally, in Galveston, where I did my residency. Um, and she's now with us and is our first fellow. Um, we have a, a significant number of 
foreign doctors interested. And uh, there is not a single week that, or uh, it doesn't pass two weeks that another surgeon is here to learn this technique from us. So this is as, as much of a hot commodity as it can be right now. And the reason for that is that after 10 years and 1,500 surgeries and 3,500 levels, we have so much data that the, it's, the difference is day and night. It is not, these are, um, this is a significant advancement in the spine uh, surgery. That is very interesting. So Dr. Bossi, we're gonna move into um, the Q&A section and get to know you a little bit. Uh, what was your first job? Hey, my first job was, I, I still I was just after my high school, I was in a factory doing a, just factory job. And it took me two weeks to recognize I'm not made for that. I, I cannot do the same thing again and again, be happy with that. So it was a very good experience for me to know what I don't want to do. That's, you know, the, the early jobs, that's just as important. Yes. What would you be doing for a living if you were not a physician? Oh, um, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, being physician wasn't my first choice. There's a reason I recited you Max Planck, who's a quantum, uh, who's a theoretical physicist. Uh, I was, uh, my dream was to be a theoretical physicist, but uh, you cannot be a theoretical physicist in Iran where I was born. <laughs> you could be a doctor, but a theoretical physicist wasn't really the thing to do. So if I cannot be a doctor, I like to be a theoretical physicist. What or who are you reading or listening to right now for news information or inspiration? Well, um, I listen to books. Um, I honestly, uh, because of what I do, um, I, uh, I have not much time to catch up with the news, especially not popular news. But I, I and I listen to books. And I, every time I drive, I listen to books. And that's, I highly recommend to anybody who has driving, lots of driving to listen to books. And the funny story there, I, every three to four days, I listen to a whole book. Um, the reason is that I, when I start listening to books, I went from normal speed to uh, 125% and then 1.5 times. And now I'm listening to books on the double speed. Yeah. And people go crazy when they listen to that. But, you know, if you go slowly up, so I listen to every three to four days to a book. And just in the last um, four and a half years, I have listened to 500 books. And it's, uh, I, I love it. I love yeah. it. That is what I do when I'm not doing my medicine stuff. Many of those books are medically related, but many of them are not. Yeah, I love books on tape. I was, during the pandemic, I would walk a lot. Um, yeah. And I listened to so many books. And then after the pandemic, uh, my, my reading has slowed down, but I still uh, read quite a few books on tape. And it's amazing. Uh, what is one thing you do every day for healthy self-care? I sleep. No, <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think that self-care is important. And I think the peace of mind is more important than anything else. You say, uh, you know, the, the physical health and the mental health, they go hand in hand. And uh, for my uh, 
I have figured out what it really helps me to relax. And uh, it's uh, very nerdy things. You know, I, I think that wouldn't be a really um, a relaxation for anybody. I build computers together. I take parts. I turn uh, the Apple computer to a PC to a Windows computer. And I take a part of a computer combined with five other parts of a different computer. And people say, as soon I'm going to uh, build a rocket or something with the spare parts and so on. But building things, finding out how things works, and listening to book is what really helped me to center my mental health. And uh, I tried to, um, at least for an hour or an hour and a half, to do one of the things that keep me calm, keep me uh, centered. And uh, for me, it's this. For somebody else, it might be something else. But I think every person can find um, eventually what it gives them, what centers them in life. And that's important thing to do. Absolutely. Do you think a person is born with a desire to heal or you only learn it through your medical training? I think it's both. Now, um, we know that, uh, uh, that some people are more uh, empathetic than the others. They have more empathy. Some people are able to take more stress than others. We know that uh, some people require less sleep than others. That this part is genetic. And make no mistake, if you're a neurosurgeon, your need for sleep has to be less than the average population. <laughs> With the average need for sleep, you don't make it through the residency or fellowship or anything like that. And so that part is actually, I think there's some genetic part into that. Your condition of what your, your requirement for life are. But as well, another part is, uh, I think, something that you learn. Once you have the pre-requirement, you're still not done. You have to learn to put your needs aside and take care of somebody else. You have to learn to put somebody else before you. It doesn't matter you're hungry or you haven't slept for two days straight. Somebody else's needs come always first. That part you can learn. Some people can learn it faster than the other. And some people eventually burn out because they cannot keep up with that. But uh, uh, many, many uh, physicians, that's what they do. They wake up, they put other people's needs before their own. They put other people's family before their own family. And, uh, uh, and, but as well, we get a joy that is really rare. It's like there's not a week I don't get a thing like that, that the patient, Aww. you know, to spill their guts out and thank you for changing their life. Yeah, That is a joy that I don't believe in many other jobs you get, that people truly feel you change their lives. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, Dr. Bossi, thank you for your time. This has been a wonderful interview. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.